0: Now, the three martini lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. David French of National Review is in for the vacationing Jim Garrity today. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And I'd say all three of them are pretty big doozies here. David, let's start with the good, which is a follow-up to last Thursday's crazy martini. I think they were all crazy last Thursday. But one of them was that President Trump was very seriously considering the commutation of the prison sentence of former and disgraced Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. Uh, For those, again, who don't remember, Rod Blagojevich was already under surveillance for corruption for a number of reasons, one of which we'll get to in a moment, uh, when he was wiretapped in this phone conversation, thinking about what he was going to do with the Senate seat vacated by the presidential election victory of one Barack Obama. This is from late 2008
1: nephew, Alex, he just turned 26 today, I said, Alex, you know, I called him for his birthday, and I said, it's just too bad you're not four years older, because I could have given you a U.S. Senate seat for your birthday.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Okay. I mean, I, I've got this thing, and it's <laughs> golden, right. and I, I'm just not giving it up for <laughs> nothing. I'm not going to do it, and and I can always parachute, use it, and <laughs> parachute me there. I thought to Fred about that, you know? There's life after that if I do it.
0: Then there was uh, President Trump saying uh, on the plane, either to or from El Paso, so this is about Blagojevich now, quote, I thought he was treated unbelievably unfairly. He was given close to 18 years in prison, and a lot of people thought it was unfair like a lot of other things. And it was the same gang, the Comey gang and all these sleaze bags that did it. And his name is Rod Blagojevich, and I'm thinking about commuting his sentence Said his wife is fantastic and he's been in jail for over seven years over a phone call where nothing happens. But now we've got this update. CNN, President Donald Trump was on the cusp of commuting former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich's sentence late last week, multiple sources said. But then Republican members of Illinois' congressional delegation began flooding the White House with calls. Now Trump appears to have backed off his plans to commute Blagojevich's sentence. Several Republican lawmakers called the acting White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, and the White House Counsel, and the Republican members of the Illinois congressional delegation issued a joint statement opposing the move. At least two of them. Congressman Darren LaHood and Mike Bost made their case directly to the president on Thursday night, urging him not to go forward. They laid out the litany of crimes Blagojevich committed while in office and argued it would send the wrong message to voters about corruption by public officials. Trump's response, I wish I had the perspective before, according to Bost, who served on the Illinois House's impeachment committee to remove Blagojevich from office in 2009. That same evening, LaHood, a former federal and state prosecutor, called Trump as well and laid out in detail the brazen charges against Blagojevich, including allegations he threatened to cancel millions in state dollars for a children's hospital if its CEO did not write him a $25,000 campaign check. Among the charges was that Blagojevich attempted to sell former President Barack Obama's Senate seat that he resigned in order to become president. And so, David, um, a lot of folks think he was soft on Blagojevich just because he was on Celebrity Apprentice. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. And we know that Trump's opinion can change at any time. But what do you make of this move?
1: Well, I'm breathing a temporary sigh of relief. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what really was motivating Trump here. I mean, it's it's pure speculation. I guess we have to take his words at Face value, in the absence of any evidence to the contrary, that he he thought the sentence was unfair. Uh, but you know, look, if you want to do white if the, if you want to do white collar prison reform and to reform sentencing for nonviolent crimes, which I think is an overall worthy cause, I re- then reform sentences for nonviolent crimes. I wouldn't say pick out one of the more blatant and grotesque examples of public corruption in recent the America's recent political past and give him a special break. <laughs> that seems to me to be politically unwise. It seems to me to be politically mystifying. And it seems to be relative to the gravity of his crimes uh, in looking at the statutory scheme relatively unjustified. So I'm not exactly sure what was going on. I mean, I think your celebrity apprentice guess is as good as mine. (laughs) Uh, But as as happens often, you will see the president will sort of talk out loud um, about multiple ideas and policy positions or decisions that ultimately don't get made. And so uh, you always have to sort of wait a beat um, and 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 pause before you know if this is a real policy. Or if this is something that act- is actually going to happen, and when you wait a beat, and during that pause, it gives people time to weigh in with the president to convince him that this is a bad idea. Sometimes he goes ahead with the bad idea. Uh, sometimes he refrains, and this time he refrained, and and that's good news, or at least refrain for now.
0: Yes, exactly right. As we said last week, there's not a lot that unites the right and the left. About a decade ago, getting rid of Rod Blagojevich was about as politically unanimous as it gets. So other than his wife, I'm not sure who's really the impetus behind this. But uh, for whatever reason, Trump seems to be at least listening to it.
1: Yes, listening, hopefully uh, not listening as much anymore. But You know, this is something that's come up more than once in his presidency. So it's something that's obviously playing on his mind. It's in the back of his mind and it comes up every now and then. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that cooler heads have prevailed and that better uh, counsel has prevailed. But we'll have to see.
0: All right, David, let's move on to our bad martini now. And while Trump considers going soft on Rod Blagojevich, he also seems to be a little bit soft when it comes to being tough on the Chinese as it relates to the pressure on Hong Kong. As we've mentioned a few times now, there have been massive protests going on in Hong Kong for weeks and weeks. It started with the now failed, at least for the moment, extradition bill that would have made it a whole lot easier to extradite people from hong kong to mainland china uh the people of hong kong uh very much afraid that the uh the chinese the, the beijing regime of xi jinping is going to essentially erode their rights from religious freedom to free speech and so many other things and basically treat them like the people of mainland china so the protests have continued they've gotten a little bit violent lately yesterday we saw the chaos at the airport and as a result of that, President Trump was asked about it while his helicopter engine was uh, revving, so I don't know how great the audio is here, but uh, here's the president's reaction to uh, the police getting more violent with the protesters there, and a little bit vice versa. The Hong Kong thing is uh, very tough situation. very tough. We'll see what happens, but I'm sure it'll work out. I hope it works out for everybody, including China, by the way. I hope it works out for everybody. So if you couldn't hear that over the engine, here's the transcript. The Hong Kong thing is a very tough situation. Very tough. We'll see what happens, but I'm sure it'll work out. I hope it works out for everybody, including China, by the way. I hope it works out for everybody. David, um, when freedom is on the line and a repressive communist regime is trying to crush that freedom, you really hope the American president is a little more vociferous on the side of the people yearning for freedom?
1: Uh, Yeah, (laughs) that's an understatement. Especially when some of those protesters are waving American flags as a symbol of their commitment to liberty, so you know this is this is a situation where you know Hong Kong, as part of the the deal to return Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty, has been granted for a long time special status within the people's Republic of china and and there has always been this sort of long term concern that that would be eroded over time, she said that that Chinese sovereignty and communist Chinese sovereignty would steadily assert itself more and more over the people of Hong Kong. And so this is an entirely understandable response from the people of Hong Kong to demand the retention of the liberties that they've grown up with, the retention of liberties that are sort of, sort of central to their culture and their identity. And this should not be a hard call. I mean, there are international agreements in play here. There are there are basic human rights in play here and so the president of the united states needs to stand up i mean there are members of congress who are standing up and again no one's saying send american boots on the ground but to declare unequivocally that the united states considers it unacceptable to engage in a repressive crackdown against pro-democracy protesters a repressive communist crackdown against pro-democracy protesters should be the easiest call in the world And so this is something the president should be doing. He should be doing it loudly. He should be doing it clearly. And he should be articulating consequences if China, in fact, decides to crack down. Um, Tom Cotton has outlined several consequences. And in fact, this should be extended beyond uh, the administration and Congress. I mean, we've got an awful lot of very woke corporations do a ton of business in China, just an absolute ton of business. And You know, we've seen that they'll try to impose economic sanctions on Indiana or Georgia or North Carolina when they don't like what Indiana, Georgia or North Carolina does. But I wonder, will they continue to as happily do business in communist China if China cracks down on Hong Kong? They shouldn't. So, you know, there should be a unified American front here that's not just the president. It's not just Congress. It's also the commercial interests that are so vital to Chinese the Chinese economy and 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 to uh, China's participation in, in the larger world culture.
0: We've discussed this yesterday with Alexandra, David, and my my working theory here is that Trump is so in the middle of these trade negotiations that he's uh, perhaps thinking that if he gets too strong in defense of the people of Hong Kong, that somehow it's going to derail the trade talks. Um, you could argue that his priorities might be out of order. But do you think that's possibly what's happening here? It's certainly possible.
1: I mean, he's he's demonstrated that when he's in the in, when he's in negotiation mode, or when he believes he's in negotiation mode, he can be quite solicitous of um, even the worst dictators, like Kim Jong Un. I mean, he continues to flatter Kim Jong Un, even though Kim Jong Un is perhaps the single most repressive dictator in the world. I mean, that's up for debate, but he's certainly in in the running. So when he is in negotiation mode, he can be quite solicitous even of some of the worst regimes. Now. Um, There is the disturbing fact that he's kind of had a soft spot for authoritarian Chinese actions in the past. I mean, some of his comments regarding the Tiananmen Square crackdown are really disturbing. And so um, it's very possible that he's sort of following this presidential pattern we've seen, that when he's negotiating, even with a repressive regime, he'll pull back from some of the worst comments about it. But this is a moment where you've got an awful lot of people's fundamental liberties and human rights at stake. Uh, And this is a situation where, you know, there should be clearly outlined an American position and some clearly outlined American position on consequences for China, if it is to crack down. Uh, Like I said, this is not something that the American president can shrink away from. And, you know, you hate to sort of say, well, if, if the Obama administration did this, what would we say? But think about that for a minute. And we remember you know, the Obama administration was very reluctant to weigh in decisively on the side of Iranian protesters who were protesting the Iranian regime early in Obama's presidency. And it turns out that Obama was very keen on negotiating a deal with Iran. And perhaps one of the reasons why Obama was what kind of went easy on the Iranian regime during that time was because of his own hopes to negotiate his own deal. And I think we are rightfully hard on Obama for that. And we need to be consistent here because. The principles are consistently
0: in play. Exactly right. Exactly right. I I saw that comparison made. And uh, when you think about the way President Reagan stood up for the people of Eastern Europe while the Iron Curtain was still very much entrenched uh, in that part of the world, there was no ambiguity whatsoever in what he thought and what he thought of the people who were trying to win their freedom in those countries. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, David. And this is kind of a multi fisted crazy martini here because we're talking about Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams, as most of you probably remember, was a state lawmaker in Georgia who became the Democratic nominee for governor there in 2018. She lost. That's a declarative sentence. She lost in 2018 (laughs) to a Republican named Brian Kemp. And uh, even before the votes were taken and and counted, Stacey Abrams asserted that there was voter suppression going on. So, of course, when she lost, uh, she asserted that voter suppression happened. And therefore, uh, if there had been a fair fight, well, she really would be the governor of Georgia. Well, now Stacey Abrams has finally decided on Tuesday that she's not going to run for president in 2020. She's not going to run for the Senate. More on that a little bit later. She is, however, telling the New York Times that she would be honored to be considered by any nominee of the party for vice president, having just been a state lawmaker, mind you. And she's also formed an organization called Fair Fight. She was on with Rachel Maddow of MSNBC last night talking about Fair Fight. And this is either what she's really believing or really peddling.
1: We know that we also face foreign influence that is being denied by the White House, by the would-be tin-pot dictator of Donald Trump, but also that Moscow Mitch is stopping voter rights legislation and election security legislation. But we also know that they just lifted a consent decree that's kept Republicans and the RNC from going into local communities and intimidating voters by having off-duty officers tell people that they're monitoring their votes. For the first time since 1981, the RNC will be allowed to cheat and lie and go into polling places. places and scare voters, particularly voters of color.
0: David, what do you make of her?
1: You know, during 2016, there was a lot of discussion about would Donald Trump accept the legitimacy of his election, of the election if he lost? And I think there were legitimate concerns as to whether Donald Trump would accept the legitimacy of the election if he lost. What we're now seeing is that not just with Georgia, but also with Hillary in 2016, um, that there are many Democrats who are not accepting the legitimacy of elections when they lose. And, and the thing that they're using to reject the legitimacy of the election, this, these theories about voter suppression, have been debunked again and again and again. I mean, you know, if, if voter suppression happened in Georgia, it's the least successful voter suppression in history because turnout for the Georgia gubernatorial race skyrocketed. I mean, skyrocketed in 2018 over the previous gubernatorial race. I mean, this was historic turnout for an, a midterm election. The numbers were through the roof. There were more Georgia voters registered in Georgia at the time of that election than before Brian Kemp began his the purges of voter rolls, Purges that were required under federal law and he was implementing many election laws that were passed by Democratic-controlled Georgia state legislatures. So this was a situation where the, the allegations so far outpaced the facts, and the real facts have not caught up with the allegations. The allegations and the myth continues to persist, and look, serious journalists need to start calling her on this. And there have been some who have said, wait a minute, we cannot be repeating these allegations of a a stolen election uncritically there have been some mainstream media journalists who've pushed back on this but the activist left has bought this narrative hook line and sinker that this was somehow a stolen election it was not a stolen election it was a free and fair election it was election that she lost and you know look she deserves credit for turning out an immense number of voters i mean there were an immense number of voters to vote for a Democrat in Georgia in 2018. She ran a campaign that was very, very effective, so effective that in a pretty red state, she almost won. But she was not denied victory. This is not an it was not an illegitimate election. And continuing to repeat that, and it's repeated constantly, has all the effects of undermining American faith and public institutions. The Democrats say Republicans do when they either preemptively or actually question the legitimacy of American elections without foundation. So, you know, this is this is not we should not be playing around with this stuff. These kinds of allegations should be made only very carefully on the basis of extremely solid evidence. And that's not what that is not what's happening here.
0: Talk a little more about the media here. You mentioned that there are some who push back, but uh, most, at least in the mainstream media, don't. It's not like Rachel Maddow had her on there to confront her claims of voter suppression uh, in the 2018 election. So what does that tell us about the media? I mean, obviously, if a Republican almost uh, a year after the fact uh, was claiming voter suppression cost them the election, I'm pretty sure the mainstream media wouldn't take them seriously at all.
1: Well, I expect about as much about Ra- uh, out of Rachel Maddow as I do out of Sean Hannity, which <laughs> right. is not not a lot. Uh, I expect them to be quite partisan. So, But I think as a general rule, what you will see is, especially in opinion pieces uh, across the length and breadth of the mainstream media, you're going to see time and time again this uh, sort of assumption that there was m- large-scale voter suppression and that the election of the current governor of Georgia is somehow suspect. This is something you see it less in the hard news, um, certainly, uh, and there have been some fact checks. But in the opinion pages across the length of breadth of left wing media and even the mainstream media, you're going to just see this repeated uncritically time and time and time again to the point where this narrative has taken hold. And that's just flat out irresponsible.
0: I mentioned that there'd be uh, one more nugget on her decision not to run for Senate. She says she's certainly open to other political opportunities, but doesn't see that as the right thing. There are other people who could win the race. And then she says, quote, I appreciate the importance of that role, meaning senator, but I'm not so arrogant as to believe I'm the only one who can win that. So clearly, humility has been Stacey Abrams' calling card throughout the past year, David.
1: Well, you know, I think if you're very confident, especially in a you know in a in an upcoming election season where there is again going to be massive Democratic turnout, and there will be a massive Democratic effort to turn Georgia blue. I mean, this is sort of the two next states on. Well, there's three states really that are next on uh, the Democrats' target list, in the same way that Republicans turned Pennsylvania red for us, you know, and Michigan and Iowa red over the last, and Wisconsin red over the last cycle the Democrats have their own targets and Georgia and Texas and Arizona, three of the main targets. So she would be running in a state where Democrats would be presumably just pouring immense amount of resources in. And so, I mean, yeah, of course she's not the only Democrat who could run for Senate, but it's a curious decision not to do so uh, with curious reasoning not to do so. if, especially if she believes she's potent enough in electoral politics to be the rightful
0: governor of Georgia. Yes. She's ready to be vice president, though, David. So we'll see. uh, And and given the identity politics of the party right now, I'm sure she's going to be on everyone's shortlist, whether she's earned it or not.
1: Well, you know, it's going to be very interesting. You're going to see over the next uh, few months an awful lot of names batted about as potential vice presidents. But we shall see. Mm -hmm. I'm not I would not necessarily have her
0: as one of the favorites. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. We'll see. David, always great to have you with us. We'll talk again tomorrow. See you then. Thanks so much for having me. David French of National Review in for Jim Garrity today. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us. And tune in again Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.